Hey there, misfits. This is Kate. And I'm Kale. <laughs> Welcome to Horrorwood. our theme music to start um i think we should just tell people how fucking funny we are we unfortunately don't have a recording of the last 30 minutes but i assure you it was gold form today it was gold we should have recorded it we should have it's fine um hi i hope everyone had a fantastic halloween last week horrorween And if you watched our Halloween video, our Wizard of Oz episode on YouTube, thanks for watching. It was ridiculous. <laughs> In all the best ways. I mean, it was wicked good, by the way. Truth. And I did have somebody recently at their birthday dinner tell me that they learned a lot. They knew about the makeup of the Tin Man, but they didn't know all yeah. the other yeah, it it's wild. It's yeah. wild. It was a nightmare to be on that set if you were one of those actors. Um, also, I was in the dark the entire time on that video. And I was like, huh, I probably should have brought my lights down. Um, also, I could barely reach the computer. You were you were an ominous tornado. So <laughs> I think it was fitting. It also, all worked. I just noticed something that I have to say because when I see this, it brings me such joy. You're wearing your Cubs pants pajamas. Always. It is such a good memory for me. Do you still have yours? Of course I do. I don't have them on. I wish I did. That would have been. Oh, that would have been good. Solid gold. Um, Instead, you're just part of gold today. And I'm not quite solid because it's much earlier here than there. I love a morning recording, though. I am far more on my. My peak hours are like. 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Outside of that range, I'm worthless. It's a gamble. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Kate and I just switched. She's going to be on it and I'm not um, because I oh, actually do what? better at night, I think. Oh, but okay. It's okay. I mean, I'm actually good with this because we've already had some gyms today. I just want to say that your shirt is amazing. Um, you. Well, all I can see is that is the vote please vote or i can't sell please, please vote for us so please vote for us so we've had so because i'm very much into politics that um are in favor of public education and special yeah. ed especially um i always do a mock election for the kids and i put these like curtains up and i just i want them to have that experience and we do fun like we do a fun election where it's like vote for your favorite candy or something. And then I, I do the real one and I put pictures on there and then we talk about it and it's, it's nice. It's fun. So anyway, one, one time I had all the kids put up a peace sign and I just took, I can't take pictures. I can't post pictures of there. Right. You know, um, but I had it from the back and underneath the caption, I just said, please vote for us because Aww, it's, we're a therapeutic special day class and people just don't, understand or know what that is, but it, mm-hmm. there's a lot that goes into it. And when voting goes in favor of education, everyone's a winner. All means Yeah, that. I well, absolutely agree. That's my and <laughs> midterms are tomorrow. So if you have not voted yet, get out there and vote. Midterms are so important. Vote for everything on the ballot. Vote for the judges. It's yeah. important to do your research. I am very privileged in that I was able to mail in my ballot. And if anyone, you know, has an opportunity, obviously I think that is the way to go. It should be nationwide. Absolutely. I get to do a Tuesday morning drop off and it's like one of my favorite things. I always take a picture of it. Oh, I love it. For myself more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Like this is, this is a right I get to have that. Exactly. Years ago we didn't have as women. So. Exactly. And it's, I, we just can't, you know, stress enough how important it is to vote in midterms. I think those often kind of get glossed over by some people. And man, that is where it, it really, 
that's kind of like the meat of the, mm-hmm. of the officials. And it's just, you got to get out there. So that's tomorrow. Make a plan. If you haven't yet, make your vote count. Also, I just have to throw this in there because uh, it's just like a fun thing. Today is mine and Matt's nine-year anniversary. <gasps> what? I know. Oh, my gosh. Can November you believe that we've been together that long? Well, I love it. I, I remember when you did an anniversary. Yeah, it was in November when you came to see Hamilton and then we got to go to the Plaza Hotel. Yes. Okay. And can I tell you, Matt and I were trying to talk about that to some, I think to his aunt when she was here. And we could not think of the name of the hotel. And I was like, the plaza? We had the tea there. And we kept saying the, the high palace. Tea. We're like, the palace doesn't sound right. And days it took us days and at, like at the same time we were like the plaza hotel anyway yeah That's that amazing. was a fun time I, I obviously won't forget it because I ran by it almost daily I was a runner in New York and so I did the run by Central Park so yeah. I ran by it daily but the fact that you guys couldn't remember when it was such a special occasion like that height it was high tea was amazing. and you were with us and it I was, was with you guys it was so, so thanks fun for, I don't know which anniversary was that I have no idea. <laughs> was well, it was when I ago. lived in New York. So yeah. I've lived in California now seven years. Wow. So it was at least seven. I, Maybe it was our second anniversary. Time then. flies, right? That is crazy. Um, also, exciting news. And I mean it this time. We do have the Patreon coming soon. We're finalizing some things. Uh, we will announce it when it's ready. I know we've been teasing it for a long time, time. Um, but you know, it's like, there's a lot of info you got to put in on that. And a lot of things to think about. Let's remember there is a quote that's called the best is yet to come. So we will just put that where it goes. (laughs) And and it goes right here. (laughs) All right. So let's get into today's episode. Uh, We can talk about the hottie. He is a hottie. I should, I should. (laughs) Kale, a picture of him. So we're talking today about Thomas Harper Ince. Thomas Harper Ince was born in the way back when times on November 16th, 1880. Oh, so he would be a sanitarian now. Let me just plug that in there because everyone made fun of me. Like, I love a good sanitarian. (laughs) Do you remember that? that. I forgot about that. Uh, Sometimes I don't live down the things I say, but whatever. <laughs> Some sources list him as being born in 1882 or 1884. How do you get that wrong? Yeah, both Wikipedia and IMDb list his birth year as 1880, as does Brian Taves, who wrote a very well-researched biography titled oh. Thomas Ince, Hollywood's Independent Pioneer. Um, and I'll link that in the show notes because I used it for uh, this episode and it's it's really well done. So I'm going to go with them and say that he was born in 1880. 1880. Okay. He was born in Newport, Rhode Island and was the third oldest of four. He had an older sister, Bertha, an older brother, John, and a younger brother, Ralph. Shout out to those names. They just sound so like namey. <laughs> This episode is going to be so fun. I can already tell. I do like the name Bertha. Yeah, I do too. His parents, John and Emma, were English immigrants. Uh, His dad was in the British Navy before moving to the United States. And it sounds like the family moved around a bit before eventually heading to New York City. And the entire family got into the entertainment business. Mm -hmm. Showbiz, baby. I'm I'm punchy. Um, there's no business, business like, like show business. business. Everyone just hit stop on stop. their, yeah, yeah. On their They're like, and next episode. <laughs> all six of them were actors, the parents and the four kids. They all acted. And Thomas's dad was an agent as well. So they were really doing their thing. Can we just say that this is awesome? Like, I just think of all of that, that kind of, um, a career move as like a today's time, but like this started so long ago. This is the 1800s, and there was an agent. Like, yeah, exactly. I know then. it is kind of weird to think about that. Uh, as a kid, Thomas was always performing. He had a good singing voice because he was in choir, which helped him develop his voice as a tenor. And he was able to earn a little money that way by singing at weddings and funerals. He also sold newspapers with his older brother John. So from a young age, he's getting a taste of what it's like to make his own money. Mm -hmm. 
And it sounds like he was really close with his brother, John, when they were kids. Uh, John was the older one, and the two of them were the closest in age. age. Okay. Because Bertha was six years older than Thomas, and Ralph was five years younger than Thomas. So I think Thomas and John just, like, kind of bonded. closer, naturally. So John and Thomas did a lot together. In addition to selling newspapers, when they weren't at school, they would wait tables at hotels. So just making that money. You know, I feel like there's a theme when we talk about um, like older actors, they, they, they start so young. I mean, or yeah, like Marilyn Monroe, for instance, started really young. They had either they felt like they had to, or it's just, I was going to say, I feel like it was kind of born out of necessity. Yeah. Just because they, they had to make a living. Uh, during Thomas's childhood, his dad had to be away a lot. He was an agent. He was an actor. He was always working to try to provide for the family. But Emma, Thomas's mom, wanted him home more. They had four kids to raise. She was also a performer. They had a lot going on. So what does any woman do in this situation? She buys a farm, obviously. Uh, Emma bought a whole ass farm in New Hampshire. I respect that greatly. I want to buy a farm. I mean. Have some chickens and some goats. I do. Okay. You just literally listed my dream life chickens and, dogs, and goats of course. yeah chickens and goats and oh. i would definitely have a cow and some horses well, um, and dogs i would have dogs obviously yeah. but that's not really the farm life but i would use what they produced in my in my farm yeah i mean that was kind of the farm to table the point was you know they could live off the land they could grow their own food that kind of thing the farm was in new hampshire and she was hoping that it would cause her husband to want to settle down Mm. she was like i bought a farm what are you going to do about it and his answer was apparently nothing because he continued to be absent Mm. and did not help take care of it so Unfortunately, the management of the farm fell to Thomas and his brother, John, the two older boys. As it would. Yeah. They're still going to school during all of this. So these kids are busy. They're teens or like. No, they're still. Not even. They're like 10. They're Yeah. I mean, they're still very young. Well, John was two years older. So I would say preteen. They probably had to walk the beans. <laughs> That's a throwback. <laughs> I love it. And teachers noticed Thomas's talent early on when he would perform in small skits and stuff that they would do in class. I bet he did Peter Pan. I knew you were going to say that. I swear that's like where every kid gets their stuff. I've got to look that up. I don't know when Peter Pan was written. Find out when Peter Pan was written and get back to me. Okay. Uh, They predicted he would have a career on stage, which is just interesting. But something happened at school. John and Thomas got in trouble for something. I couldn't find exactly what it was, but they didn't want their dad to find out. However, John Sr. did find out and was pissed that they had kept it from him. So he said, it's time for you boys to start earning a living. Do you have that answer for me? I, oh, yes. Uh, yeah, they were not performing Peter Pan because it was produced first uh 1904. Okay. It was called The Boy Who Would Not Grow Up. Okay. It was a Scottish, uh, by a Scottish playwright, J.M. Barry. So, and it was from, uh, then there was a 1911 novel, but yeah. So, so there goes your whole theory and, on Peter Pan. Yep. Damn. <sighs> so... Thomas and John left school and unfortunately went their separate ways to try and carve out careers for themselves. And again, they're very young. These are kids. John joined up with some theater companies and Thomas got into vaudeville with his parents and the two didn't see each other for years. Whoa. Yeah. Even though he didn't have much formal education, Thomas was really smart. He had a keen sense of intuition and an entrepreneurial spirit that had no doubt been instilled in him from a young age when he was working odd jobs to make money. He always regretted not having a college education, though. He once told an employee, if you knew how I envy you, your university training, God, what I could have done if I'd had one. Which he did a lot with that one, and we'll get into it. Thomas is performing with his family. They had a traveling theater company, and he performed with a lot of other companies as well. Again, he's still a kid, barely a teenager. Unfortunately, his family's theater company went broke, and he worked with other companies here and there, and then at 15 made his Broadway debut in a play called Shore Acres, which... 
What's the Golden Girls? Um, oh, Shady um, Pines. Shady, Shady Pines. Pines. Yep. That's what it made me think of. <laughs> uh, the play was written by James Hearn, and Thomas spent two years working with him because he ended up touring with Shore Acres. And Thomas said his time with Hearn was the greatest schooling he had for the career that was in store for him. Oh. He said, I was only a boy, very true, but I was at that impressionable age when a youngster absorbs everything that transpires about him. End of quote. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, that was just a good quote. Yeah, I really like that. His ambition and work ethic afforded him a healthy sense of self-confidence. And he had a strong physical presence. He was stocky, good looking. Oh, yeah. He was, he, was, he was a looker. He was very handsome. He had good hair. He did. He had a little swoop and a curl. Mm, the swoop and the curl. Mm. <laughs> so I'll post a pic. So I'll post a few. <laughs> post, yeah. And please post the one, not the eyes. Kale thinks he has devil eyes in a photo, but I think... I when you just, zoom in on them, they're a little Well, yeah, devilish. when you got as close as you did. did. <laughs> it was quite frightening. Uh, so based on his physique and his confidence, people automatically just took him seriously, which worked to his advantage. In the summer of 1902, when he was 21, acting jobs were slow and he needed work. So he just walked into a hotel and was like, hey, I want to be a lifeguard here. And despite not knowing how to swim, the hotel manager was like, okay. It's like, catch me if you can. That movie. It kind of was. You know, like he didn't even know how to fly, but he just had that kind of like stature and demeanor. He's I like, I'll figure it out. What? I'm going to start standing taller. That's it. People take me seriously? Maybe? No. Okay. I don't understand. Well, no, you said like he walks in with a presence. And if yeah. I like, kind of walk in and, you know. Yeah, you just got to be like, yeah. shoulders back, like, suck. Yeah. Yeah. You know. So this hotel manager never asked Thomas if he could swim, never questioned his ability, just looked at him you and was like. You would think that'd be the first question. You would think, but he was just like, this guy knows what he's doing. So, yeah, you're hired. So Thomas got the job and spent his evenings teaching himself how to swim. Wild. Yeah. I love it. So that was in the summer of 1902. That October, Thomas got a role in a play that ran through spring of 1903. He used his savings from the money he earned on that show to lease the pool from the hotel and turn it into a, quote, high-class bathing establishment. Well, that's savvy. Exactly. He was very savvy. So basically, it sounds like he ran a pool party all summer long, which when you're 21, 22 Listen, years old, like that's bring in the book. That's what you want to do. Yeah. I mean, he had clients like that. I mean, he had that entrepreneurial spirit. So that fall, he got another gig on Broadway and there he met actor William S. Hart. The two became friends, so the following year, when Thomas and his roommate were struggling to make rent, he invited William to come live with them. Everyone was on board with that idea because they were all struggling artists, and now they could split the rent three ways. Money was still tight, though. The three men lived on stale bread and beans, for the most part. They ate so little that when the mother of Frank, the third roommate, sent them a fruitcake, it was such a shock to the system that Thomas was <gasps> sick for sick. days after oh, eating it. Yeah. yeah. Eventually, their money ran out, and the three men parted ways. Thomas continued to work odd jobs with some acting gigs here and there and went on tour with several productions. He even started his own vaudeville company called Thomas Ooh. H. Ince and his comedians. He really is like more of an entrepreneur. He is. Like that company did not last long. You know, you sometimes just got to take that first step. Yeah, exactly. He then formed the Ince Dramatic Stock Company, which toured for several months. And when he wasn't touring, he was teaching acting classes. So he was he was a go-getter. He was always coming up with ideas and to make money. I, I like to say a brush with failure generally creates more success later. Oh, it absolutely does. Then in 1906 or 1907, I've seen it listed as both. Thomas got a job in the Broadway play For Love's Sweet Sake, where he met actress Eleanor Kershaw. And Thomas looked at Eleanor and was like, damn, do you want to go on a date, Eleanor? Oh. And she said, absolutely I do, and I go by Nell. She saw the hair swoop, and she was in. She did. She was like, that little curl? Mm. Yes. He said, cool, cool, cool. I love the name Nell. I love the name Nell. You maybe want to date, get married, and eventually have three boys together. 
oh my gosh. And she said, absolutely, I do. And so they did. I have decided that now somebody needs to say, cool, cool, cool. I love the name Kale. And then, (laughs) you know. Do you want to date, get married, and have three boys? I mean, sure. I definitely want a hair (laughs) swoop. So, okay. That's that's the only prerequisite. You have to have the hair swoop. Yep. Uh, Thomas found that work on the stage was too few and far between. So Nell introduced him to some people at the company she was working for, The Biograph. The Biograph was founded in 1895 and was the first company in the U.S. that focused solely on film production. I do want to, I do want, I was just thinking, you know, quickly, um, I could handle it, I think, you know, I I have eight boys in in the class that I teach in um, and I'm like, okay. I could not. Three boys and just send me back in time. Voila. Voila. No, thank you. (laughs) Not for me. By 1910, Thomas was working exclusively in films and was directed by D.W. Griffith. We've mentioned him in a previous episode. But he was still often underemployed. So that's when he decided, screw acting, I'm going to be a director. And this Uh, is when Thomas's career really starts to take shape. When a director at the Independent Motion Picture Company, or IMP, was unable to complete work on a small film, Thomas was given the opportunity to take over. He had acted in a few films at IMP prior to this, so he had some connections there already. Right, 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 right. And just FYI, IMP would eventually become Universal Pictures. So I thought it sounded like it was something big. Yeah. The film Thomas took over was called Little Nell's Tobacco, which... Because early 1900s. And during its premiere, he was so nervous about how it would be received that he spent the entire time talking to Carl Lemley, the head of the company, because he didn't want to hear any negative comments. I think you need to do that if you're going to have a company. Like, think of all the things that could arise with it. Uh, uh, and do, <laughs> See, I lost my place. I'm, I got it together now, though. <laughs> it. This is just fun. It is. And during their conversation, Kale just put on her heart glass, her heart-shaped eyeglasses, her heart-shaped sunglasses, words. They're gold. I like them. So, and during their conversation, Thomas proposed that Limley hire him on full-time as a director. Mind you, this is his first directing gig. It's like the pool all over again. And it was just a small film. Exactly. It was exactly like that. So Limley was so impressed by Thomas that he hired him there on the spot. Wow. I'm going to start calling directors lifeguards. Okay. <laughs> Limley said, quote, I made up my mind to give him a job as a director. I noticed in the first place that he was strong and healthy physically so he could stand the hard work. And although he had pleasant manners, he had guts and decision. And he was a good actor. And it's interesting that Limley pointed out Thomas's health and physique as a factor in hiring him on because this image of him does play into his death. Oh, oh. Yeah. So suddenly Thomas's career goes from zero to 60 like that. He had to quickly learn the ins and outs of film directing and technique because, again, he had no experience. Yeah. Meanwhile, there was a trust called the Motion Pictures Patent Company that was trying to monopolize film production and crush all the independent companies such as IMP. So Limley sent Thomas to Cuba to make films out of the reach of the Motion Pictures Patent Company. Ah, okay. He made a few films there, most of which starred Mary Pickford, but he realized he was really drawn to Westerns and American Civil War dramas. Oh, and that's like a, that was at that time frame, wasn't that pretty, getting pretty big? Well, it was about to, yeah. He had observed D.W. Griffith's success at creating these spectacular effects using minimal sets and felt that the only place this could be accomplished was Hollywood. Hollywood had the landscape, but most importantly, the climate that would allow him to shoot outdoors year round. So in 1911, Thomas heard a rumor that another company called the New York Motion Picture Company had plans to establish a West Coast studio specifically for making Westerns. Thomas was like, that's exactly what I want to do. Maybe I should be working for that company Mm -hmm. instead of IMP. But he'd only been with IMP about a year and didn't have a ton of experience under his Mm -hmm. belt. So he thought, if I want to impress Charles Bowman, who was the head of the New York Motion Picture Company... I need him to think that I'm a successful director. So 
He borrowed a suit from a friend. Of course. I don't even think he owned a suit himself because he spent well, most of his not. life right. as an underemployed actor and he had just started directing films. So he didn't have a ton of money. So he borrows this suit. Then he goes to a local jeweler and is like, hey, can I borrow this diamond ring? I'm not going to buy it. I just need it for like a quick sec. And the jeweler looks at him and is like, this guy knows what he's doing. And he said, oh, sure. sure. So Thomas walks into Charles Bowman's office and is like, hey, I'm a super successful director. Just look at how I'm dressed. You should totally hire me on to go to California and make Westerns for your studio. I'll save you time and money because it's in California and we can film year round. Exactly. I like it. I like and it. Bowman looked at him and said, you do look like a super successful director. Look at you in that suit and that diamond ring. You should absolutely go to California and I'll pay you $100 a week to do it. Thomas later said he was completely shocked by the offer. He didn't think it would actually work. And it did. Yeah. Lifeguard. And he said, quote, I kept cool and concealed my excitement. I tried to convey the impression that he would have to raise the ante if he wanted me. So this badass borrows clothes to look more successful, walks into this head honcho's office, barely having any experience, says, hire me, and then says, well, if you really want me, you've got to pay me more. He is sharp, and I am crushing. He is. He like, is. Mm, okay. And Bowman said, absolutely. How about $150 a week instead? Hell yeah, he did. And Thomas signed a contract with the New York Motion Picture Company. So just to put it into perspective, $150 in 1911 is close to $5,000 today. So he's getting 5000 bucks a week. And might I add, for not knowing how to do much. Exactly. He had a few months experience and that was it. But clearly had the capacity and the willpower to like keep learning. So. Oh, yeah. Thomas, along with his wife, cameraman, prop man. And the three boys. I don't know that they were born yet. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, and actress Ethel Grandin, who was to be the leading lady in his films, moved out to California. Bison Life Motion Pictures was the name of the West Coast studio. It was a subsidiary of the New York Motion Picture Company. Mm. And it was located in Edendale, which is now Echo Park. And if you watch The Flight Attendant, which I know you oh, did, Kale. I did. I did. Echo that Park. Echo Park is where they find the two people murdered and they think <gasps> Cassie did it. Do you remember all that? Yes, I do. I do. Yeah. So Thomas starts writing and directing Westerns in Edendale. And it was there that he decided, you know, there's a better, more organized way to make films. He began carefully planning each film out on paper and invented the shooting script, which would give info on who was in each scene, the scene plot, a list of all the exteriors so and like interiors. Notes, kind of? Is that what Yeah, like just an organized list of what they needed to make this movie. Okay. And then he would break down the shooting schedule so that several scenes could be shot simultaneously by assistant directors. That was all his... His doing, his invention. Okay. Yeah. Which, I mean, that process is still used today. After arriving in Edendale, it wasn't long before Thomas felt the area was too small for the films he wanted to make because he had big dreams. Visions. Big visions, yes. Yeah. All that was there was a four-room bungalow and a barn. And Thomas was like, mm, going to need more space. Yeah, I can't, I can't actually picture that being the correct space for big westerns yeah i and because i used to live near echo park i'm just like where did they oh, do yeah. this he found a 460 acre tract of land located where sunset boulevard meets the pacific coast highway sunset boulevard it's always i you know what it is so present <laughs> i just feel like so many things happen i mean it's definitely a it's definitely a, a main thoroughfare is that the thing no yeah I mean, it's, it's a main road main road uh, yeah okay. surface streets names this area of land was known as bison ranch and thomas rented it by the day rented by the day by the day yeah so is his money just going like that you know well like not exactly he's actually making some cash because since he you know expanded a little bit he's able to do some bigger things he's making okay. a little more money so Got by the it. following yeah. year, in 1912, he had earned enough money for the company to buy the land. Oh. But it still wasn't big enough for what he envisioned because, again, he's he's got big dreams. big dreams. Love it. 
Welcome to Hollywood. What's your dream? <laughs> What's your dream? So he calls up the folks at New York New York Motion Picture Company and asks if he could lease more land. And Bowman was like, uh, how much do you need? And Thomas said, mm, like 18,000 more acres. And Bowman said, you got it. Damn. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it was here that Thomas oversaw the construction of his very own studio. It was the largest and first of its kind. It had stages for interior scenes, offices, a commissary large enough to feed hundreds of people, dressing rooms, prop houses, elaborate sets. Oh, Thomas. Yeah. There were extensive Western sets that were used on that site for years. And there were structures to look like various parts of the world. So he could, you know, he had like cottages, he had mansions, he had an area that looked like it was in Japan, one that looked like it was in Switzerland. I, I love when people are vulnerable enough to try. And I got this a long time ago from a former teacher who was a huge role model for me. And she would always say to try is to grow, to grow is to try. Mm -hmm. And I constantly, I still use that that today. But the the fact of like someone having an idea and it coming to fruition and then expanding. Yeah. And it can it can be the smallest things. It doesn't have to be something like grandiose. It can be something small. Like, I mean, I have big dreams of owning a winery. So like I get it. So you gotta you gotta buy some land and you gotta stomp some grapes. That land that's right. <laughs> Uh, because his focus was on Westerns, which required a lot of animals, obviously, he grew different types of food up in the Santa Monica Hills. And, and he had the experience from his past farm life. Exactly. Like it's all, Loving it. it's all Loving coming it. together. Yes. He brought along his old friend and former roommate, William Hart, and put him in some of his films. But unfortunately, the two had a falling out over money. Hart didn't feel that Thomas was paying him his fair share. And and Hart was a major Western star. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just like there's some beef between the two of them, which is kind of sad. And it, depending on what source you use, one leans more towards Thomas's and then side. the other is William Hart. Yeah, so it's kind of hard to determine which actually which you side you would take, or yeah. just trying to be neutral. Um, I really want to nickname William Hart Billy Love. Why? Well, because William, you know, a nickname is Bill, Billy, and then Heart. I think of, I'm sure it's spelled differently, but like I think of a heart and love. And I just think that's a powerful name. Billy Love. I um, see where your brain is. I um, see it. Yeah. Well, I, I don't. So I I'm glad you it. can follow it. I followed it. Great. Uh, Thomas also hired a Wild West show that had cowboys, Native Americans, along with horses and cattle. And they became a part of his movies and actually lived on the grounds I, of the studio. I was, gonna, I was wondering. I was like, okay, where's the caretaking in this? We still need to be kind to animals. He called his studio Innsville, which you can still see on a map, even though the studio is no longer there. And for people that are familiar with that area it's kind of right by gladstones which is like right on the water um so it's just interesting because the land is there the sets the studio none mm -hmm. of that's there anymore but thomas eventually sorry but thomas essentially created the role of the producer like the career um yeah like the role stature. of what a producer does yeah whoa because before this the director and cameraman controlled the production but thomas made the producer the person in charge of the film from beginning to end and he was also one of the first to hire a separate writer director and editor instead of doing everything himself now i see where the pioneer part comes in and he needed the separation of those jobs. Like it was getting too much for him. And so he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I need to step back and there needs to be a role for this. And I'm going to create a, an entire career that to this day, I mean, hello. Yeah. His studio was the first of his kind to have stages and a commissary and dressing. Like that was all him. A lot of what he did shaped how the Hollywood studio system works today. With the help of the company's accountant, George Stout, they were able to organize the process of putting out films and went from putting out one film a week to three films a week. Three films a week? Three films a week. Now, these are short films, like one or two real films. So not like feature links that we think of today. They were mostly Westerns and were written, produced, edited, and released within a week's time. Wow. It was an assembly line system that all studios would eventually use. That's incredible. Yeah. 
Thomas would later relocate to Culver City, where he partnered with D.W. Griffith and Max Sinnott, forming the Triangle Motion Picture Company. Their studio in Culver City would eventually become Sony Picture Studio, which we just talked about in the Wizard of Oz episode. Wowza. Just days after he relocated, his studio at Innsville caught fire. Apparently, it caught fire several times. Was it arson? I didn't read that it was. Um, So I'm not really sure, like, the cause of it. I doubt it was arson because people still wanted to use, I mean... They still had the stages and everything there, and people wanted to use it. Uh, Apparently, it caught fire several times, and the buildings were destroyed. Interestingly enough, Thomas sold it to William Hart, who renamed it Hartville. Then Hart sold it, and by 1922, movies stopped filming there because fire had pretty much destroyed all of it. That is some history. Yeah. In 1918, Thomas sold his shares in Triangle and a year later formed the Thomas H. Ince Studios. So he separated himself. Yes. Okay. He he got out of, because okay. he wanted to become more independent again. Mm-hmm. So though he had some success, the big studios were taking over and independent producers like him were struggling. Thomas would often rent the use of his studio to other productions mm-hmm. to help to with make- income. Yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, William Randolph Hearst, a millionaire who developed the largest newspaper chain and media company in the U.S. Wasn't um, that movie about him? Um, uh, Citizen Kane? Yep. No? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Look at you with the history. I, who, shocked, actually. <laughs> he owned most of the big newspapers and magazines and was also having a not-so-secret affair with actress Marion Davies. Hearst was extremely jealous of her, but also willing to do whatever he could to help her in her career. So when the big studios were taking over and he didn't have as much say in the productions that she was involved in, he decided to see if his production company could use space at the Thomas Ince Studios, thinking that working with an independent producer would be beneficial to both him and Marion. Absolutely. Okay. The move would have been great for Thomas as well. They each had something the other wanted. Thomas would get rent money. Hearst would get more control. So it was kind of a win-win for the two Mm -hmm. guys. So on Saturday, November 15th, 1924, Hearst went to Thomas's home and invited him for a weekend cruise on his yacht, the Oneida, which he had reportedly purchased exclusively for Marion's use. Hearst was like, hey, Tom, Let's finish the negotiations on this deal. We can celebrate your 44th birthday tomorrow. It'll be a party. Marion will be there. Charlie Chaplin, along with several other industry folks. We leave later today. Damn. And Thomas said, sounds great. I have some work to finish up today, but I'll take the train tomorrow and catch up with you when the boat is docked in San Diego. I, I have a, my, um, like I have that kind of prickly feeling. Is there mm-hmm. going to be, ha- something's happening with this boat. No? Maybe. So... Marion Davies also had to work, so she got a ride with Charlie Chaplin. Like you would, like you would then. I mean, back then, yeah, that was totally normal. So the next day, Sunday, November 16th, on his 44th birthday, Thomas takes the train down to San Diego and boards the yacht. His wife, Nell, could not attend, so he went alone. Mm. In addition to the crew, there were 20 guests on board, and the party was popping. Yeah, it was. Everyone is dancing and drinking and vibing. Thomas was feeling himself. He was like, I just closed this deal with this multimillionaire, so that's awesome. He's thinking back to the time. Remember when I like pawned a diamond from some jeweler and said, I'm going to put it on with my slap on that suit that I borrowed and go in and, and, you know, get big. He was like, I'm doing better now on this yacht. It's my birthday. What better way to celebrate than with some champagne? So he starts throwing back the champs. Thomas, I can relate because I love the champs. Then he was probably thinking, you know, this is a lot of alcohol. I should probably have some protein. Mm, These salted almonds look delish. So he throws back some almonds. It was all fun and games until Thomas became ill with acute indigestion later that evening. From what? Like a bad almond? Well, he was just partying. Was he partying. was partying. Okay. It was so so fancy the way you said it. He didn't say like, <laughs> like he got so wasted. Then he was just like, oh, I'm going to have to throw up. It was a yeah. cute indigestion. <laughs> so he went to bed. He's like, I'm out. See you in the morning. 
But the next morning, he was still really ill. So a water taxi took Thomas from the yacht to San Diego. Dr. Daniel Goodman went with him. He wasn't Thomas's personal doctor, but he was a doctor that happened to be a guest on the yacht at this party. So they get to San Diego and board a train headed back to L.A. But on the train, Thomas was getting worse. So Dr. Goodman decided they should get off the train, head to a hotel, head to a hotel, not a hospital, and call Nell and have her bring Thomas's regular physician down. So she does. They get there that Monday night, stay in the hotel, and then Tuesday morning, get on a train to L.A. and head home. Once he got home, Thomas starts feeling a little better. Oh. Everyone's like, great. But his doctor decided to stay with him that night just to keep an eye on him. That's good. That's good. A few hours later, at 5.45 a.m. on Wednesday, November 19th, 1924, Thomas was pronounced dead. Just up and dead at his house? Up and dead at his house. Oh, damn. Immediately that very morning, the Los Angeles Times printed the headline, Movie Producer Shot on Hearst Yacht. And it was all over the front page. But we already know that that didn't happen, right? I love your face right now. It's amazing. <laughs> uh, rumors started swirling. Of course. And the one that people seemed to latch on to the most was that Hearst had become angry at Charlie Chaplin because Chaplin had a thing for Marion, Hearst's mistress. And after a few drinks, Hearst saw Marion with a man and thought it was Chaplin, became enraged and shot at him. Only it was Thomas Ince instead that was hit with a bullet. It didn't help that Charlie Chaplin's own chauffeur, uh, Toraichi Kono, claimed he saw Thomas's body being removed from the yacht and that he was bleeding from a bullet wound in his head. So is there any proof that he actually made it onto this train and the hotel and and back to the home and all of that? Like, where are we? Well, we'll get into okay. it. Yeah, there are some conflicting Ooh, reports. Ay, ay, ay. I wasn't ready for any of this. Well, I never am. You always like <laughs> give me the shock factor. I'm like, wait, what? Oh, good. That's what I was going for. But we were going so good. We were going so good in this story. Like he, he was just partying. It was his birthday. Yeah. Bubbles. Hello. Bubbles. Kono goes home and tells his wife. So Kono is Charlie Chaplin's chauffeur. Mm-hmm. Tells his wife that he saw uh, Thomas Enns' body pulled out from the boat and that he was bleeding. And soon that story spread throughout Beverly Hills. As it would. I get it. It's Hollywood. It's movies. It's, yeah. Weirdly, though, Charlie Chaplin denied that he was ever even on the yacht. On the yacht? (gasps) But it's like, dude, your chauffeur was there. So, okay. Eleanor Glenn, a writer who was a guest on the yacht that night, told actress Eleanor Boardman, there are a lot of Eleanors in this story. I think that must have been like a, hot name back then yeah that everyone on board the yacht had been sworn to secrecy about the events so that's weird marion davy's own nephew told a similar story to peter Bog- bogdanovich i <laughs> i had to like pause because i i have trouble with his last name even though it's an easy name to say but i always mess it up define easy but okay yeah yeah true so marion davy's own nephew told a similar story to peter bogdanovich who directed the film the cat's meow which is about this weekend cruise and the death of Thomas Ince. And it portrays his death as a homicide where he was shot, was shot by Hearst after he mistook him for Charlie Chaplin. Thomas's funeral was open casket, though. But there was no head wound? No one reported seeing a bullet hole in his head. How do we know that? Okay, how do we know that it was open casket? It was reported that it way? It was reported, or? yeah. Okay. Hmm. He was oh. cremated immediately after. And that also made people, you know, Suspicious. start speculating. Yeah. yeah. Hearst newspapers released a statement. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they released a statement. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, They said that Thomas had been visiting Hearst at Hearst's home for the weekend when he overindulged and went home. But then they later retracted that statement. Marion Davies would never confirm that she or Charlie Chaplin had ever even been on the yacht. On the yacht. So, okay, what is what is. Thomas's wife saying, "What's Nell saying right now?" Like, do oh, we know? Well, I'm going to oh, tell you here in just a minute. Yay. Okay, I, I shouldn't get excited about a death, but, but I mean, but you just want to know what happened. I want to know what happened. Yeah. Newspapers put out conflicting information. Some said he became ill at his home. Others said it was at William Hurst's home. Others say he got sick on the yacht. So the different stories only added fuel to the rumor mill. I kind of feel like this is um, Marilyn and the Kennedys all over again, and the different kind of. of. I mean, it's just like. It was hard to get a straight answer from people. Yeah. 
Also, no one took Thomas to the hospital. They took him to that hotel. hotel. And he was clearly sick enough on the yacht that he had to be taken back by water taxi. Why didn't anyone take him to the hospital? Which is, that's just weird. What's also weird is that Patty Hearst, that Patty Hearst, who was kidnapped when she was 19, she was the granddaughter of William Hearst. Oh, that was Hearst. Okay. She partnered up with another writer, Cordelia Francis Biddle, and they wrote the novel Murder at San Simeon. San Simeon was what William Hearst called his home. Oh. And the novel is about the death of Thomas, Thomas Ince, and in it, she portrays his death as a murder, having been shot by her grandfather. Yeah. Wild. Oh, gosh. But all those rumors were investigated and none of them held any weight. They were all quickly refuted. Okay. Thomas's official cause of death was a heart attack because it turns uh, out what? He, he'd been suffering from heart disease for some time. And part of what made his death so shocking is that no one knew he was ill. He kept it hidden because he knew how important it was to appear healthy and fit so other productions, directors, etc. Consistently like find that he is a person that they would want to hire. Okay. Yep. They so that they would have confidence mm-hmm. in him that he could mm-hmm. get the job done. Because remember, Carl Limley listed Thomas's health and physique as a factor in hiring him on as a full time director. So he actually was feeling not the best for a long time. For a then. while. Yeah. It wasn't just this acute digestion or drunk factor. I mean it was there was something going on internally with he him. He had a, yeah, it was an underlying condition that he knew about. Thomas kept his illness a secret. He suffered from angina for years and was also prone to peptic ulcers. At the time of his death, he was at the height of his career. So no one could believe he had a heart attack. They were just like, no, he's healthy. He's still in the game. They all thought something more nefarious must have taken place. And that was, he was 44. 44, yeah. Yeah, that's, I, I can relate to that age so much. So... They all think, you know, something suspicious happened, but it didn't. Despite all the rumors to the contrary, Thomas was supposed to avoid food and drinks that could trigger a flare-up. Alcohol, salty foods, that sort of thing. Ah. But on the night of his 44th birthday, he He was feeling it. Drinking the champs, eating the almonds. And unfortunately, it was too much and his heart couldn't take it. Damn, what a way to go. Shit. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I don't know. All I kept thinking when I was researching this, and this is horrible, but I kept singing, it's my party and I'll die if I want to, (sighs) which is horrible. And I probably shouldn't have even said it just now, but that's where my mind was. (laughs) To dispute the rumors, his wife, Nell, came out and said, don't you think if I suspected my husband had been murdered, I would launch a thorough investigation? She's just like, no, dude was drinking champs like it was water. And then he ate those fucking salted almonds. Side note, Nell was a bad bitch in her own right. Damn. I love it. I love it. I love it. Thomas would not have had the career he did if it weren't for her. her. She was the one who initially connected him with the biograph, remember, which got him into film. And she was his assistant for years. And when he died, she took over the company. I'm a big fan of females rooting on their man. I just think, well, people should root on each other, right? Like it should be a give and take and it should be balanced. But there's something special about that for some reason of like, you want the best for someone. You want that person to of feel course. the best about themselves. And so go now. But also she never got the credit she was due. And right. in one newspaper that wrote about his death, it talked about how Nell took over the company. And the way it's written, it said, Mrs. Thomas H. Ince, mm-hmm. which they don't even list her name. Right. Said Mrs. Thomas H. Ince, a woman of unusual ability, will take an active part in the direction of affairs. Because how could a woman be smart right. enough to take to over take a up. company? Yeah, it's so, it's just like cringeworthy. Crin- what did I say? Cringeworthy? cringeworthy. I was like, it's cringeworthy. <laughs> Cringeworthy. I enjoy an accent, so. (laughs) All Nell wanted for her husband was for him to be remembered as the film industry pioneer that he was. But unfortunately, with all the rumors surrounding his death and then Patty Hearst's book and the movie Mm. The Cat's Meow, that wasn't the case. He is remembered mostly for dying under mysterious circumstances. 
William Hurst also had to deal with the aftermath of Thomas's death because people thought he was a lot guilty. of rumors. Yeah, absolutely. So he had this stigma attached to him. And years later, he was talking with a journalist and he said, not only am I innocent of this ins murder, so is everyone else. But it's weird that he says this ins murder, murder when he wasn't murdered. It's just strange. Well, and, he wants he wants he wants some sort of weird recognition or like to have his name out there, and so he's going to say something that gets people's attention. Maybe I don't think that's it. His name is oh. out there. He's a multimillionaire. No, 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 no I'm just saying like, he's going to continue to do that. It's kind of like you know what is it? No publicity or bad. Publicity There's no such is, thing as bad publicity. Thank you. Yes, I think maybe I it, it was probably just like a slip of the tongue, but it's just a weird phrasing. Uh, and I just want to end this with a quote from David Shepard. He was a film preservationist. He worked to save and restore silent films specifically. He oh. said of Thomas, quote, he did everything. He was so proficient at every aspect of filmmaking that even films he didn't direct have the ins print because he exercised such tight control over his scripts and edited so mercilessly that he could delegate direction to others and still get what he wanted. Much of what Ince contributed to the American film took place off the screen. He established production conventions that persisted forebears, and though his career in films lasted only 14 years, his influence far outlived him. Wow, what a shine. That's a, that's a great quote. I, like, I liked um, David Shepard saying Ince print. Ince print. That's, yeah. I yeah. mean, if you're going to leave a legacy. That is the remarkably unremarkable death of Thomas H. Ince. Good on your words there. Good on your words. And that's it. If you liked it, let us know. Please. Rate. Review. Subscribe. And Kale, take us away with all the social media things. So we would love to have your emails at horrorwood at gmail.com. Horrorwoodpodcast no. at gmail.com. <laughs> Damn it. I was so We're ready We're going to get it right too. one day. I was so ready. I well, I wasn't clearly. Maybe I just haven't had enough coffee. Um, and any of the social medias except Twitter, I will go with Twitter in just a moment. But at Horwood Podcast on the Insta, on the Face, on the whatever on the Spotify's on the on the Apple Podcast, and then Twitter, we just had to be a little different there. It's at Horwood Pod. Go out there, vote tomorrow. Make your vote count. Stay away from the salted almonds. Yeah. Uh, get get the unroasted, unsalted. Yeah, but go easy on the champs. We know what happened to me when I drank a bottle. It's rough, rough times. Uh, that's everything. Bye, misfits. Bah. Bah-bah. Bye.